Hello everyone, it is episode 21 here and we are stoked to introduce a good friend of Ujwal and mine, Tom Monagal. Now you guys might be familiar with the Monagal name when I sat down with his brother Solomon just last year and we thought that Tom would be able to provide a unique perspective on mental health from an outsider looking in. Now, Tom has also gone through his fair share of, of mental health experiences from battling Tourette's as a young kid, um, he experienced anxiety, uh, OCD, and also PTSD. Now, we also wanted to flag that in this episode, we do dive into some really intense themes, and there can be a lot to take in. Um, we talk about sexual assault that um, Tom experienced, so we thought we'd give you a quick heads up about that. But all in all, we hope you guys enjoy the next hour and hope to see you on the other side. Awesome, sweet. Tommy, welcome to Bottled Up. Thank you so much for joining us, mate. No, thanks for having me, boys. It's a pleasure. I've been uh, been watching you guys blossom over your first season, and so uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I was sort of uh, chomping at the bit to be able to, to get on and yeah. have a yarn with you guys. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me. No, Very excited. Thanks, mate. And um, we, we actually had a, I think late last year, we had a feedback sort of session where we asked our listeners to give us a bit of feedback about um, you know what we can do differently for for this year um, or for the new season. And I remember that you actually sent through a really, a really sort of uh, it was a really nice feedback, by the way. And then you mentioned that you also would lo- would have loved to come on. Um, you are the brother of Solomon Monagle, so Solomon Monagle was someone that we interviewed last year. Um, we sort of uh, Ujwal and I sat down with him, um, had a had a conversation uh, about his sort of mental health journey, and and that, that was an, that was an indefinitely an intense story. Yeah. And we thought, you know, why not have have the brother on as well? And, and you've got a story to tell as well. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So, um, yeah, the old, older brother of Sol, the, uh, you know, I've showed him the way, showed him the ropes. Um, you know, some would say maybe I taught him everything he knows. And, and some may also say that that has led to a pretty poor result, arguably. Um, but, yeah, no, Sol, Sol's my brother. Um, and, yeah, that, that podcast episode you guys did with him was, was awesome. Um, I actually listened to it. I think Sol and I listened to it together um, after it got released for the first time with each other. Um, and, yeah, no, it was really, really um, – really impactful and um yeah he's uh he honestly he's i sort of view him as one of like the most inspirational people i know um and yeah so obviously proud to be his brother and that was that was a very proud moment for me listening to his podcast and him being able to tell his story and sort of deliver a really important message so um yeah obviously after hearing that i was uh yeah, very obviously proud of him, but also you know, proud of you guys for being able to do that and help him and, you know, be able to put that story out there. And um, I was equally keen to be able to, you know, if I can, um, you know, share a couple of stories myself that might hopefully be able to help some people, um, yeah, get on and do that as well. Mm. Yeah, and let's not forget, this is Ujwal, by the way, um, <coughs> let's not forget the three of us, how we, or how I met Tom was through the Mighty Serial Offenders. Um, Mighty Serial yeah. Offenders. Yeah, so I... Yeah, yeah, Mank as well. But I knew Sully from school for not not for too long because I joined when he was kind of about leaving school. But I knew I knew who he was, but I didn't know you because I think you were a bit older. You might have left by the time I joined. But when I yeah. joined the Serial Offenders, uh, like the sense of community there, you know, the spirit, the passion that all the boys brought. And I came in as a fill-in mm. at first. So <laughs> to see that friendship yeah. develop with everyone, all like 10 or 15 of us, um, it's been really great. And then to, to talk to Sully... Uh, meet him back there and see how well he was doing and then hear the story um, over a year ago now, I think, or about a year ago in the podcast. That was a really, that was really inspirational. So, Yeah, and now we're on a podcast. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's, uh, it's funny how it all works out. The Serial Offenders is quite a bit of a brotherhood. Um, for anyone listening, yeah. at Serial Offenders Official on Instagram, that is, that is the handle. Um, go and support us. We're very active on there. Um, and yeah, you know, for us from, from a serial offender standpoint, as I'm the captain of the serial offenders, for those listening, um, it, is, it is a little bit of a dictatorship. It's a friendly, you know, family oriented dictatorship, but I'm, I'm the captain. No one's taking that away from me. Um, but from my perspective, you know, anyone that's a friend of Mank is a friend of the serial oh, offenders. Okay. And so, you know, we asked, I think the way he sort of came in, which he was, we were short on numbers and sent the message out to Maz, like, oh, have you, have you got any mates that might want to play? And he was like, I'm on it, um, brought you in. And from there it was like, yeah, holy shit, this guy can play. So we'll uh, like to have him around a bit more. 
And then my brother came in. <laughs> yeah, now Narman's in as well. He's an absolute gee, He's playing real well this season too. So um, with uh, fingers crossed, with the uh, I mean the lockdown at the moment has put the season on hold, but we've got one more game to go before finals, and we're currently sitting top of uh, top of the ladder. So top of the with ladder. any that's where luck, we, we that's exactly right. It's where we belong, and I mean <laughs> we do have a wretched finals history. We're not we're not good in finals, the serial offenders. I think we've we've played in seven grand finals. We've won two and lost five. Um, <laughs> But then you're like, this is the year, this is the season. So it's all a mental all game for us, here. though. It is. It's, it's all, all above the us. shoulders. All above the shoulders, and <laughs> you know, I think, um, I think, yeah, listening to podcasts like this can help us oh, in that 100%. space above the shoulders, get us uh, performing at our peak. <laughs> no, nah, yeah, hundred percent. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and just on the topic of you know above the shoulders stuff, I think. Um, you know, the reason we wanted to get you on today was uh, we think you'd provide a, a really unique perspective for us um, on on mental <coughs> health, given what Solomon had, had gone through, your younger brother, um, yep. who had to battle through depression and um, just hearing it, hearing the story from your side. But I think before we even get into that, I was hoping to uh, maybe take a step back a little bit and maybe just talk to you about mm-hmm. sort of your early childhood life. I mean, I, I remember you, you yep. mentioned that you grew up having Tourette's, right? Yeah, so um, yeah, I you know I actually sort of moved around a bit with schools, which was interesting. I um I started off, I think my first week I did one week of school at Edithville Primary, and then my parents moved house to Mordialic. So after one week at Edithville Primary, I was at Mordialic Primary. I was there for um, a couple of years until year two, at which point um, I got a scholarship to Halebury for the first time. Um, went to Halebury from years two till four. But yeah, on the on the Tourette stuff, um, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting story actually. I I didn't really remember this as a kid, but I think as early as me being four or five years old, um, I sort of and so actually I should explain for those that don't know, Tourette syndrome um, is uh, a neurological disorder, um, and what it is is it's the combination of motor and vocal tics. Um, what a tic is is it's sort of an involuntary. Um, action um, that you might get. So a motor tick is like a sort of a movement. A vocal tick is obviously a, a sound or uh, you know noise that you might make. Um, and a tick, the way you experience a tick is essentially it's a, a build up of tension doesn't get released until you have that tick. Um, and so yeah, growing up with it, um, particularly with the stigma that that does sort of exist, it, it was it was quite challenging at times, particularly in high school. Um, yeah. And I, when I first had it, I really I, I felt embarrassed by it, and I really didn't know how to tell people that I had Tourette syndrome because I just thought, particularly having been bullied pretty badly in middle school as well, and then. Even at Halebury, like, I wasn't bullied heaps, but I was, you know, there were people that would, you know, that didn't didn't like me and, you know, would sort of make jokes at my expense. And I, I was far from, you know, one of the cool kids at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really didn't have the confidence, the self-confidence to tell people, oh, you know, I've got Tourette syndrome. So often I'd find, you know, in class I'd be making, you know, this, my little, I'd have like my vocalisation tics and, you know, be making these squeaking noises and, someone might turn around and be like, you know, Tom, can you, you know, stop making those weird dog-like noises? Like, what are you doing? Sort of like laughing about it. And rather than me being able to just say, oh, I'm sorry, I've actually got Tourette's. That's just one of my tics. I would just sort of like laugh it off and, you know, not know how to respond. And so obviously that's, you know, difficult when I'm sitting there. I'd be sitting in class thinking like, I don't want a tick. I really don't want to have a tick. Like, and suppressing them. But as we know, when you suppress them, that just inevitably leads to a larger outburst and it actually got to the point where um I uh had to have special sort of arrangements in my VCE exams and SACs in particular where I was put in a separate room um because I had a couple of um you know SACs that I did uh where I'd be sitting in the exam hall um and the entire time, I wasn't able to concentrate on my work because the entire time I was just thinking to myself, I really don't want to have ticks. I really don't want to have ticks, and just trying to suppress them. And all my mental energy was going towards suppressing them rather than writing my, you know, my, my assessment. Um, yeah. And so, and I was also, it also obviously made sense for me to be in a separate room because it's not, if I did start having ticks, it's not fair on the other students around me to be distracted by that happening so um it was good that yeah for for year 12 in particular i was able to be seated in a separate room and um 
and do my um, my assessments just by myself and not have to worry about, you know, I can have my ticks and it doesn't matter. Um, you know, I'm just going to focus on actually yeah. <clears throat> writing the assessment. Um, but, yeah, as I sort of got older, um, even, you know, first couple of years of uni, I did still struggle with telling people. Um, but I sort of got to a point where I was less embarrassed by my ticks. I was more comfortable with them. And then it sort of got to the point where I sort of realised, like, if I tell someone – you know, if someone asks me about, you know, a tick that I've had and I say, oh, yeah, look, sorry, I've actually got Tourette's syndrome, that's what that is. Mm. Um, and if they had a negative reaction to that, that's entirely reflective of them. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. that's got nothing to do with me. And the reality of it is, of, you know, because now when it happens, I just tell people, like, oh, yeah, I've got Tourette's syndrome. Everyone reacts fine. Like, particularly, mm. you know, in high school, I can imagine maybe people might not be so kind because kids suck and they're not mature. Um, But, you know, in the adult world, in the real world, like everyone is so chill about it Um, and it's because it's not a big deal is the thing. So, yeah, so I've grown a lot more confident in just being able to tell people and just, you know, owning it and sort of embracing it as, you know, this is part of sort of what makes me who I am and and it's one of the many things that makes me sort of a unique individual. Um, And I still have my tics. I still get them, but my tics are far less... Um, severe than they used to be so I think with age it's sort of gotten a, a little bit better um, but I'm also at a point where if I'm having a day where I'm having a lot of ticks and it's noticeable that doesn't really bother me as much anymore because I'm more sort of confident about it and comfortable yeah. what was the process like for you like especially from high going from high school where you know it was something you wanted to wanted to suppress to now where you're very comfortable with it what was sort of like that can you explain maybe what that was like and how you sort of got to that point was it just something that you just accepted or was it like yeah. a process was it like a yeah well I think I for a long time I've um I've I've been seeing a psychologist for a long time and now um I see a psychiatrist as well um mainly for my ADHD and Tourette's um sort of uh side of things um so yeah workshopping through it with, with the psychologist and psychiatrist has helped um you know CBT um, has been really good for me in learning um, sort of calming breathing techniques and sort of elements of mindfulness and that kind of thing, um, which also helps with um, with the tics becoming less sort of prominent. Because um, t- tics are sort of funny in that, like, they're very, they're very variable how you'll experience them day to day. Like, if you're more anxious, you'll be having more tics. Um, I find that if yeah. I'm... Oh, so there is a correlation Yeah, there's, there. yeah, there's okay. a correlation. And I'll, I'll find that also if I'm really tired, if I haven't had enough sleep, I'll be having more ticks, um, all these different things. Okay. So, um, you know, being able to ground myself and do these sort of calming breathing exercises can help the ticks sort of subside a little bit. They'll still be there. They'll still exist. But, you know, I might be having a time where they're just nonstop. And if, you know, I can realise that and go, okay, let's just settle it down. Let's, mm. you know, ground ourselves ground myself let's do this calming breathing um that can sort of help with that but i think for me as well um in terms of becoming more comfortable with them um i think there was this sort of fortunate progression where they did sort of become just a little bit less severe um i had and we'll get to this later on obviously but in in 2015 i had a, a pretty traumatic time and i had a pretty traumatic couple of years and during that period my tics were really, really off the charts, like really bad. And it actually got to the point where they were so severe that they almost acted as like a speech impediment where I'd start a sentence and then I'd have this outburst of tics and I literally wouldn't be able to say the next word or finish my sentence until the explosion of tics had finished. Um, and that when, when it was that kind of bad, it was really, really difficult to sort of deal with and really difficult to sort of process mentally and be comfortable with. But I sort of had this... Um, yeah, I think as as I got on top of my mental health in different areas, um, that did help the ticks become less prominent. Um, but then also there was that sort of um, element of just becoming more comfortable with them, um, you know, personally and um, having experiences where I, you know, like for instance, you know, I was um, in a long-term relationship and, the person I was dating at the time was was aware of them and, you know, was awesome about them. Like, sh- you know, she was so, um, 
caring and considerate and she, you know, she actually, she probably really helped me find confidence in myself about them. She sort of just, she even got to the point where she sort of liked them in a way because, you know, if she heard them when she was with me, that was like, she was like, oh, I'm with, I'm with Tom. Like, that's really nice. Um, Mm. So that, that was really helpful to sort of instill confidence in me and my family and friends as well, you know, being really good about them, you know, reassuring me that they're not a big deal. They barely notice them. Um, that, that obviously helped instill confidence in me. And I think as well, just when, you know, I'm 25 now, um, when you're a teenager and even when you're early adult, you know, late teens, early twenties, you don't really necessarily know who you are and your self of sense is still developing and you're not necessarily as confident of who you are as a person. Um, and as I've sort of grown up and matured a fair bit and, and I've gone through a lot of self-development as well. Like I, I look back at myself at the age of 20 and, you know, whilst I was like, I had good intentions at heart, there were some things that I was doing then that I look back and go, oh, you were, you were not, you know, as anywhere near as good a person as I think I am now. Um, and I think, you know, we're all going through that self-development and self-improvement. And I think, you know, part of that is becoming more reassured in yourself as a person. And as mm-hmm. I just had that sort of natural development and got, you know, a bit older and a bit more mature and confident in myself and who I am and what I stand for and all those kind of things, I just became more, you know, comfortable and confident in, in my tics as well and the things that make me me. And, and, and it's sort of that mindset as well that I sort of touched on earlier that I'm very aware now that if, if someone finds out that I've got Tourette's or if someone hears my tics and they want to be, you know, mean about it or, you know, um, mm. or if I tell them and they have an adverse reaction, that's entirely on them. Like that's got nothing to do with me. That's got nothing to do with who I am as a person, me being, you know, not a good person or anything like that. That actually is almost just helpful because it will tell me, well, you're not someone that I really feel like I should, you know, bother spending much time on. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just becoming more confident in myself, I think probably helped me with that as well. Yeah. And also like what I've, from what you've shared so far, I think a really important message I've got out of it, um, is that your mental health and your physical health, when you're dealing with what's an underlying physical illness in your case, which is Tourette's, for other people mm-hmm. it can be many other things, is related to your mental health directly and they both impact each other, which is such an important thing to understand Like uh, at some point. like mm-hmm. Obviously it takes time to realise these things, but as you said, if you were feeling more anxious, you were more likely to have... Um, like a, Ticks, like a yeah. to, to have a tick and it goes the other way as well how perhaps when you weren't really expressing um like you had this condition and you're suffering I'm sure that would have impacted your mental health how was yeah. that journey how did that go so obviously in in school it was very difficult because you got diagnosed pretty late right that's like incredibly late yeah when, yeah relatively late yeah um and there are people that um you know have been diagnosed um even later than that but um but yeah it, it was it was pretty late to be diagnosed um and yeah, so obviously, um, it's kind of funny. I think, um, there's obviously the stigma and it's mm. possibly a little bit of a tangent, but I think for me, like most people, when I was young and growing up in high school, the only thing they knew about Tourette's was the South Park episode about Tourette's. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. and it's yeah. sort of, you know, in the episode Cartman, you know, there's a kid with Tourette's and Cartman sort of starts to try to pretend that he's got Tourette's because he can get things that he wants that way or whatever. And then the sort of joke of it is that, you know, he ends up actually developing it and not being able to stop and all that kind of thing. And mm, watching yeah. when I was growing up, I, and, and particularly when I first found out that I had Tourette's, I found that episode quite um, sort of difficult to deal with in that I think it's sort of, yeah. um, I, I will say watching it again now, being more comfortable with Tourette's, I do think that it probably is a little bit more nuanced than I realized at first. And, the, the actual characters in that episode that do have Tourette's, it's quite an accurate representation of what Tourette's is like. Yeah. Um, but I think the one problem with the episode is that a lot of people can't pick up on that nuance. And so a lot of yeah. people, you know, their takeaway from it is, oh, how hilarious was it when Cartman had Tourette's and he was just swearing all the time and it was this ridiculous disorder. And, you know, that's another thing that um, people will say to me when they find out t- that I've got Tourette's is I'll say something along the lines of like, oh, does that mean, you know, you can swear whenever you want and get away with it. And it's like, A, no, that's not what that means. B, if I was, you know, because there are people that do have really, really severe Tourette's and severe tics where 
their, their, the, a tick that they may experience will be phrases that they say or swearing or, you know, these really, really sort of um, heightened ticks. And for them, that's not a positive thing. Like they don't look at that and go, oh, yeah, yeah I can just say whatever I want whenever I want. How good is this? I'll, I'll swear whenever I want. Yeah. That's, it's, that would be awful to be experiencing that and, and it's not fun. And so I think, um, yeah, that sort of, uh, you know, the narrative that, that he's, is sadly, and, and the stigma that's sadly um, pretty widespread is that Tourette's is this, you know, sort of funny disorder, you know, it's, you know, where we can laugh about it because, like, oh, people just swear all the time and, you know, it's not, it's not you know, that serious. It's just a bit of a joke. And, um, yeah, that, that was sort of difficult to deal with and difficult, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'd probably speak for um, a lot of people with Tourette's where, um, you know, that, that stigma... Um, is yeah, is pretty challenging to confront, um, particularly because when people, um, you know, like I've I've had friends and, and family who who are all very well meaning and very you know love me for me and and don't care that I've got Tourette's, but we'll, you know I've had friends and family close to me that have still said things along those lines of like, oh, does that mean you can just swear whenever you want? Um, and you know when it's coming from someone that you know doesn't mean bad that, that they mean well by you but that's their sort of you know it's still such a negative um thing to say it, it's difficult to sort of deal with um yeah and sorry and tom and just touching on that information misinformation piece i think that misinformation actually breeds that stigma yeah um i think that um especially with that whole an simple example of that is actually you know a psychologist session i mean i think a lot of people might have the imagery of a psychologist session being um you know, sort of lying down on your back and then, you know, sort of uh, the psychologist asking you, you know, tell us, tell me about when, what, what yeah. you were like when you were a kid. Or something like, some, asking some sort of deep cutting question. But it's not that, it's just literally a conversation. So, um, you know, I think it's, um, yeah. that misinformation can breed that. And it's like, t- t- tell me about your mother or some, you know, some caricature yeah, exactly. like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and I'm a massive advocate for the idea that I think everyone, you know, can do well seeing a psychologist. Like, like even if you don't, because the great thing about, yeah. and, and this comes back to your point, your, your question, Uji, about, um, you know, how, how I sort of got on top of it and that sort of that journey was, yeah, as I, um, you know, as I started confronting these things and also just anxiety, I was a very anxious person as well. And I had, um, mm. pretty, I had really bad social anxiety during high school and just general anxiety. Um, you know, as I mentioned with threats, I've got all these different things, ADHD, anxiety, yada, yada. Um, and as I, yeah, as, as I got to probably, um, year 10, 11, I did start, I was, I was regularly seeing a psychologist and, um, yeah, being able to just have that space, you know, for an hour with, with a trained professional, to be able to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about, whatever it is you want to deal with or work through um, and to be able to sort through, you know, the negative sort of thinking you might be experiencing in your head or, um, you know, techniques that you can use to sort of um, handle situations better or to sort of uh, help, uh, you know, calm your anxiety or whatever it may be. Um, It's so helpful. And, you know, even I've had sessions where, um, you know, I've had a, an appointment booked in with my psychiatrist, like way down the track or, you know, my psychologist or whatever. And then it will get to the day and I'll be thinking, God, there's no real need for me to go to this because I'm feeling quite good about myself. Like I don't, I feel like this might be a waste of time, but then I'll go to the session. And even when I'm feeling on top of the world, I'll come out of the, you know, psychiatrist or psychologist appointment thinking that was so good. That was so beneficial for me to be able to just sit there and, and you know, that you, everyone's got something going on. That's the thing. Everyone's, you know, no one knows everyone's story 100%. And there's always something going on in your life that, you know, you probably could do with talking to someone about. And yeah, being, you know, being able to sit down with someone that is, you know, trained to, to help you with that. And just to have like a dedicated soundboard, even someone that will, will sit there for that hour and listen to you talk about whatever it is you want to mm. talk about. Um, it's really, really helpful, and I couldn't, I couldn't recommend it enough. So, one hundred percent, what you were saying, Maz, is right. That you know, this idea that you know, it's, yeah. it's sort of, uh, and I think it's very prevalent again in the in the men's mental health space, where there's this sort of toxic masculinity element that you know, oh, we, you know, we battle on, and you know, we we don't let ourselves get down. We sort of push through, and and you know, we're strong and all that kind of thing. We don't need to seek help. It's it's ridiculous because you know the the ironic part of that is is that most of the people that will spew that kind of um, idea 
will actually be going through something pretty bad themselves and might be going, might have a really, you know, be in a really bad mental health space and and they're the ones that possibly need it the most. So, yeah, we definitely need to break down this idea that, you know, it's weak to talk um, about things or seek help because, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, even if you're doing fine, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for, you know, if, if you've got, obviously not everyone's got the money for it, but if you've got the money for it and, you know, you can set aside an hour every every couple of months even or whatever to go and see someone to talk about, you know, whatever it is that, you know, you might need even just a little bit of help with, it's so good for you and, and it helps it helps in, an incredible mm-hmm. amount. So, yeah, that's – and that's definitely something that, yeah, 100% helped me sort of get to this point where um, I'm really comfortable in myself in, in sort of all facets of my life. Um, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with who I am and um, – you know, most, most of the things I do and I'm still, you know, actively trying to develop and, and learn and improve myself. But, um, you know, most of my anxiety in terms of social interactions, which I still have here and there, but it's gotten so much better. And, um, yeah, we, we can all improve ourselves. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone should be looking at themselves as like right now as like, oh, I'm the finished product of who I want to be. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, even just that mantra of continuous improvement, um, yeah, I, I think, yeah, seeing people can really help. Mm, yeah. On the topic of sort of, you know, seeing people and, and getting help, I think it's a good segue to maybe talk a bit about, you know, your, your relationship with Solomon, who um, obviously he was going through, he had a tough time, um, a tough period of his life, and, and you were there for him. Um, you know, I, I was wanting I was wanting to maybe pick your brain on this, on the, the process around that. I think, um, you know, what was your mindset when, you know, about Solomon and how was your relationship with Solomon before he broke the news yeah. to you and, you know, the moment right after he broke the news to me, like, what was that like? Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, um, so the first that I'd heard really of Sol, that Sol was struggling was mum actually um, told my sister and I that Sol had been self-harming. Um, and I think before mum had told us this, he'd been, because um, he's got, and, you know, if you, if you know Sol now, he's got scars all up yeah. in his arms, like it's it's there to see people, you know, and people see the scars and they know what's going on. And that's another thing that I, you know, just I can't imagine, like the courage that he shows to just, you know, he and people ask him like, oh, do you want to cover those up? He says, no, it's like part of who I am. Like his courage to be able to go out, yeah. you know, day to day, not worry about covering up his scars because, you know, that's who makes him who he is. Um, and, you know, yeah. if people want to cover up their scars, that's completely fine as well and completely reasonable. But I sort of look at him and go, the fact that he's able to do that and he knows that there are people that are, you know, he gets looks from people and people make comments. And um, for him to be able to, you know, just be so confident in himself that that doesn't bother him. And I'm sure it does, but, you know, to sort of be like, no, this is who I am. And, and if you've got an issue with that, that's your problem. Like that's so inspirational to me as well. And so courageous. Um, yeah. But yeah, before, um, you know, there was this, this night um, at home after school, I think one day when mum told Tilly and I that, yeah, look, Sol's been, this is what's happening. Sol's going through depression. He's been self-harming. Um, I think before that he'd been covering up his scars. And then that evening, I think mum told us because he wasn't going to be covering them up. Um, and after she, told me that I was sitting at the dining table and I literally sat there just numb, just completely still frozen for like 30 minutes. Cause I like, okay. I just, I was so upset and I just couldn't comprehend that he, how bad a, a space he was in and that he was struggling through that. Because before I mentioned that I didn't know he was going through anything. I had no idea. I had no idea that he'd been suffering. I had no idea that he'd been feeling even slightly upset, let alone going through depression. So and, you know, at that point at the family home we were living in, like my room was like literally two metres from Sully's room. Like we, you know, we were always that, you know, close in proximity to one another. Um, never. And so, yeah, I was just sort of like, how was I so unaware of this? And I was so shocked. Um, and, yeah, it really, really hit me. Um, and, yeah, and I think – and it, it sort of – it moved really quickly after that because I think it was literally only a week or two after I found out that he'd been self-harming that Sully actually um, attempted to take his life for the first time. Um, and so it was just this whirlwind in that in that first couple of weeks of, like, whole, like how have I not been able to see this, um, you know, and just really being shocked and sort of really upset for Sully but also trying to work out, like – how this is happening because I just couldn't see any of it. Um, and yeah, so that was really, really difficult. Um, 
obviously for me, but obviously more so for Sully. But yeah, I think from there, you know, obviously with you know finding out that he was going through depression and he was self-harming and then after his first attempt and everything as well, it was sort of like, okay, well, this is the situation. I'm, I'm aware of it. I'm, you know, I'm going to talk to him about this stuff and I, you know, I want to sort of be there for him. And, um, yeah, so I, I think it quickly sort of developed whilst it was really, really difficult, obviously it quickly developed into this like shit. No, I need to be there for my brother right now. Like this, yeah. this isn't about yeah. me whatsoever. This has got, and, and I never felt that it was, I never felt like, Oh, you know, poor me. I'm, you know, trying to, trying to do year 12 and my brother's, you know, like struggling and, and it's a just like, it never was a distraction to me. I, I remember like halfway through year 12, I said to mum, like, cause I, I was, I was aiming, I, I was a good student at school as well. And I was, I was aiming to get into law, um, which like the clearly innate after that was 98. Um, and I said to mum halfway through year 12, I was like, I, I don't think I'm going to get a 90, um, which, and not to be dismissive of that because, you know, that's a ridiculously good score for anyone as well. Yeah. Like, but um, yeah, I was, I was aiming for the 98 and I, I sort of like gave up on that halfway through the year. I was like, there's no way I'm going to do it. But I also said to mum, like, and I don't care. Like, I don't care. How yeah. am I, how am I meant, how can I care about school right now? when my brother's going through all this stuff. It literally means nothing to me anymore. I couldn't care less. I just want Sully to be better. I want him to be okay. And so it sort of, yeah, forced me to go into that mindset of like, well, I really want to be here for Sully and what can I do to help him? And obviously that doesn't mean, you spend every second of your day trying to assist him with everything, but it just meant, you know, having conversations with him wherever I could and, and, and making myself available to him to be able to say, you know, I'm having these really negative thoughts. I'm having, and you know, there were times, um, in between, um, attempt, uh, you know, attempted suicides and, and after and all that, where he, he would say to me sometimes like, I'm feeling really bad. I've actually written another suicide note and, and these kind of things. And obviously they're very, very challenging conversations to have and they're very confronting and, um, you know, difficult. But I, I think the thing for me was I wasn't there. I wanted him to be able to have those conversations with me so that he could at least feel, because from my perspective, it was like if he was feeling that way and he felt like he couldn't tell anyone, that would just make it so much worse. So if he yeah. came to me with one of those conversations, I sort of felt like, okay, well, that's really, that's really difficult to hear and really alarming, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, don't be an idiot. Don't, you know, don't do that, whatever. Like I obviously wouldn't encourage him, but like, I'd, yeah. you know, be there to just be like, okay, do you want to talk about it? Like, let's, you know, that, that really sucks. I'm, I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. You know, I, I, I'm here for you if for whatever you want to talk about. Um, and yeah, I think, um, you know, going into that mindset of, um, you know, I, I just want to try and help him and be there for him where I can. Um, yeah, really sort of help develop that, that relationship as well, where, you know, it, it's, it's a sort of weird sort of side effect of it. It's a bit off topic, but, um, Solly and I are into completely different music, for instance, I'm massively into hip hop, um, and R&B and, and, and Sol's, Sol's into metal, um, and yeah. like, you know, death metal, metalcore and all this kind of thing. And at, at the time he was into sort of post hardcore, um, music and I never listened to it. I didn't like it at all, but through yeah. like listening to that with him and I knew that was the music he was listening to and really emoting to was through starting to listen to that. I actually there are a bunch of those songs now that I'm like, yeah, they slap like they're awesome. And so like, just like sharing all these different things with him. Um, yeah. Sort of really developed our relationship, I think. Um, so I think I've sort of lost track of the question really, to be honest, but um, no. no, 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 that's completely fine. No, I think you, you definitely answered it. Um, I think, you know, when I was speaking with Sol, um, one of the things that he mentioned was um, he definitely, the, the, this whole idea of family and he couldn't speak enough highly enough of, yourself and, and Sean as well, your dad and, and your mum and, and, and everyone. Um, he said that he really yep. used you guys as a, as a pillar of support and it's one of the reasons why he's in the position that he's in at the moment because he's just so thankful for the love and support you guys showed him. Um, and it's interesting to, that, you know, um, it was, what, what's sort yep. of interesting to me is that, you know, you were also going through some, some stuff during that time. Um, and, you know, I'm sort of in your boat, boat here, man. I think Ojal and I are both in your boat. You can take it as, as far as you want. Um, because there was definitely a point where, um, you know, you mentioned that you were sexually assaulted by one of your neurologists. Um, and, and that would have been, um, you know, that would have, I can't even begin to imagine, you know, your mindset at that time. Um, 
but yeah, I was ho- I was hoping again we're in, we're in your boat here, man. Um, would you like to maybe just describe to us what that time was like for you? <clears throat> yeah, look. So, and I'll say from the outset here, um, I don't know if you guys might add something at the start of the podcast as well, but just a, a trigger warning for anyone listening that um, this is some pretty um, heavy stuff that we're going into. Um, to do with sexual assault and sexual violence. Um, so if that causes you distress, um, be aware that that's what we're about to talk about. Um, and you know, if you need if you need to stop listening or need to take a break, do so. Like help yourself first. Um, look out for your own mental health. Um, but yeah, going into it. Um, so in 2015, um, I started seeing a new neurologist um, for my you know threats. Um, and ADHD and all the other associated things. Um, I was in second year university um, at that time at Monash. Um, and, yeah, so I started seeing this new neurologist. His name was Dr. Churchyard. Um, and the first session I went there to see him in, um, I went in with my mum because um, it was a new – we'd had real difficulty finding a good neurologist to work with me um, for my Tourette's that, that – um, that I sort of found helpful. We'd seen a few different people and they hadn't really worked. They hadn't really fit my style. I didn't really feel like I was getting anywhere with it. Um, and so we, we went and saw, we had this person recommended to us. Um, and we went and so we had this first appointment. Um, uh, and yeah, so he was a neurologist. Um, and I went there to, to work on my Tourette syndrome with him. Um, and went into the first appointment with mum and sort of just went through, you know, sort of just general sort of background questions. Um, I think it was sort of about, um, you know, what we're there for, the Tourette syndrome, just all sort of general overview stuff. And then, you know, mum left the room, um, you know, as, as does happen because I'm an adult and I don't necessarily need my mum to be there with me for the whole time. Um, and then um, eventually what sort of happened was uh, Dr. Churchyard wanted to go through a full body examination with me. Um, anyway, he did that for about two minutes um, and then the – quote unquote full body examination was over and I put my clothes back on. Um, we finished the consult and, you know, I went out to the waiting room where mum was waiting for me and, you know, we booked in another appointment or whatever. And as we're leaving the hospital, mum sort of asked me like, oh, how, how was it? Um, and I said, yeah, look, it was good. Cause overall the stuff that he was saying before all that was good. Um, and it was helpful and everything. Um, but I said, yeah, it was good, but this sort of weird thing happened that I want to check with you, but let's just wait till we get to the car. Cause I like, I didn't want to arouse any suspicion in the, I was, yeah, sort of obviously just shocked and a bit frazzled. Um, and we got to the car and I told mum what happened and she said, Oh, you know, that doesn't sound really normal. Um, and we talked about it with dad as well. And for context, mum and dad are both doctors. Um, mm-hmm. and dad again was sort of like that doesn't really seem normal but I, I think what sort of happened was I didn't necessarily explain exactly what had happened to mum and dad entirely clearly they didn't quite comprehend exactly what had happened and so we sort of landed on and it was sort of a product as well of it had, we'd been through this multiple years ordeal of like trying to find someone that really worked for my Tourette's and had had a real difficulty finding anyone and so we landed on this point where we were like oh you know it seems potentially not okay, but we're going to give the benefit of the doubt, which, you know, obviously in hindsight wasn't, wasn't the right thing to do, but we sort of, we'd really struggled to find someone that works. So we thought, okay, well, let's just hope that that was normal. In my mind anyway, I was like, let's just hope that was normal. Give the benefit of the doubt. We'll push on forward with, with this doctor. Um, and then I saw him a second time and, and nothing weird happened in that second consult. And so after that, I remember I left that consult and I called dad and one of the first things I said to him was, you know, nothing weird happened. There was no, there was no um, inappropriate touching or, you know, stripping me down or anything. So I thought, okay, that's, that's good. That, that, you know, I'm confident now that maybe this is all right. Ended up seeing him a third time. And, and the third time that I saw him was actually an emergency appointment that my mum had organized for me because I'd been going through um, really difficult mental health stuff. And I'd, you know, I, I did this sort of, I think it was like a depression test online that, you know, put me in this range, the score that I got was like, yeah, almost, you know, depression. I was really struggling. So mum organized this, this um, appointment with Dr. Churchyard again. And at that appointment, I was talking with him about the stuff I was experiencing. And I described to him that I felt like I was having these sort of body image issues. Um, And then from that, he sort of, you know, said, okay, well, let's have a look at these body image issues. He got me to strip down again. Yeah, it was this just awful experience. Um, 
anyway, and, and, and the thing was at that time as well, I sort of, I really froze up. I was like, okay, I know that this isn't, I know that this is bad. I know that what's happening isn't okay and, and is definitely assault. But in my mind, I was like, I don't want to arouse any suspicious in, suspicion in him that I am not okay with this because we were in his medical suite. He had the curtain pulled behind him. So like no one was in the room but us. And even if someone came to the window of the room, he had the curtain pulled so no one could see what was happening. So I was, it was just me and him in there. And I sort of thought to myself, I don't want to, I don't want him to know that I'm freaked out because I don't know how far he's going to take this. I don't know. I'm, I'm scared. I'm terrified. And I don't want this to, you know, um, escalate even further than it is right now. So I just froze up. I decided, okay, I'm just going to make sure he doesn't realize that I'm put off by this. Anyway, finished up with that. The rest of the sort of consult, obviously can't really remember too well, but we finished off with whatever we were talking about. And then I went out um, afterwards and pretty much straight away when I was leaving with mum said, yeah, no, that, that was weird. We got to talk about that. And in the car home, we were sort of like, yeah, no, that wasn't okay. Um, rang dad on the car ride home as well. And he was like, no, nah, this isn't good. Um, and dad was really productive. He was sort of like, look, I think we've got two options here. I think the first one is you definitely have to report this to the medical board. I was like, yeah, 100%. Um, and then he was also like, well, I think also this is actually a police matter. So you, you might want to think about reporting it to the police. And I was 100% on board. I was like, yeah, this needs to, I need to do this. Um, so yeah, then reported it to the police and, and the medical board and, um, the medical board board's response was really, really bad. Um, but the police, um, their investigation was, um, really good and he ended up, uh, getting charged, uh, with two counts of, at the time it was called indecent assault. Nowadays, um, the law is it's just sexual assault. Um, he got charged with two counts of that, uh, for the two, um, consults in which it happened. Um, yeah, so that, that was sort of, um, what happened. Um, yeah. Yeah, man, that was intense. I mean, thanks for yeah. thanks for taking the courage to share that because even listening to that, yeah. like, it's really hard to even think where do we, like, yeah, it's yeah. even like trying, like, obviously you can't even, it's hard to even imagine, obviously, what you would have gone through. That's, yeah. that is, um, yeah. yeah, there's not really many words you can say in that sort of situation, but I know um, based on, like, the previous conversations and what, what you said before that, you obviously went quite public about this and it was over the media yeah. and you shared your story and it'd be great to hear, like, over mm. the period of years after, how what were the key messages and what do you want to share with everyone? Because you could almost say you, you've come out and shared your voice and you have a message behind this. Yeah, for sure. So, so I guess just to sort of um, kind of uh, wrap up the story, I guess, what sort of ended up happening was, um, so Dr. Churchyard got, um, he got charged with the two counts of indecent assault um, we went to the committee that what happens then is you go to a committal hearing, um, which is, uh, it was held at the magistrate's court. Um, and, uh, what that is, is basically this sort of hearing, uh, where the prosecution and defense put forward evidence and the magistrate decides whether the person will be committed to trial. And if the magistrate commits, um, the, if the accused to trial, what they're saying is there is enough evidence here for you to be charged of the crime. So we're going to go to an actual proper trial. Um, and so he went to the committal hearing and as obviously the primary witness, what that meant for me was I was examined by the, by the, um, prosecution who was obviously, um, advocating for my side. Um, but then I was cross-examined by the defense. Um, and that was an awful experience. Um, it was the, the cross-examination went for about two hours and obviously I had to go through step-by-step step everything that happened um, when I was assaulted. It was very frustrating and, and very difficult to go through. At the end of that process, the magistrate committed Dr. Churchyard to trial, so I said, yep, there's enough evidence here. We're going to trial. There's enough evidence to convict you of this crime. But then, and, a, and a trial date was set, but then unfortunately, um, before we got to trial, Dr. Churchyard took his own life. How did that make you feel? Um, I was really, really angry because for me, I, you know, I yep. okay. had the courage to take this to police, to the medical board. I had the courage to go through, 
you know, the, the communal hearing and, and stand up and sort of be like, yeah, no, I'm actually going to put myself through all this. And it's really traumatic going through the whole, you know, you got to go to police and make a, a witness statement, which takes hours. And it's just going through step by step, deep, detail by detail, what happened. And, you know, then you got to go to the communal hearing, do the same thing again. And, you know, in the meantime, I'm already experiencing PTSD from the traumatic events and you're just reliving it time and time again. And then, when I found out that he'd taken his own life, I was just, you know, my initial reaction was just really, really angry because I felt like you've put me through this, you've traumatized me for probably the rest of my life. And now you're not giving me the opportunity to, um, you know, have my day in court and, and, you know, have the, you know, the affirmation from the court to say, yes, this person is guilty, this did happen to you, we recognise that. So my initial reaction was really, really angry, but I eventually sort of got to a place where I was kind of like, look, they have to do that, you know what I mean? Like, it, it it's not good and I'm, I'm not sitting here going like, yeah, good, you know, he's gone. Like, that's not how I feel about it at all. I feel, I feel really horrible that he was, you know, he felt that that was his only option and I feel particularly horrible for his family and friends and loved ones that, you know, lost someone through that. So I'm not sitting here thinking like, you know, good riddance, he's gone. Um, but I did also get to a place where I sort of felt like, look, with this happening, I don't have to go through trial again. I don't have to, you know, exp- you know, go through the, you know, being re-traumatized by, you know, cross-examination multiple times. Um, so I, I probably, I got to a point where I was at peace with it. I tell friends, it took me a long time to open up to anyone, mm. um, about this stuff because obviously it was really traumatic and you know I was having I was experiencing really severe PTSD and I still do have PTSD from it but it's you know luckily it's subdued a fair bit um you know in the aftermath I was I was literally I was struggling through every day sort of you know having these sort of re-experiencing moments but then the worst part of it for me was like literally every night I was having nightmares about what had happened and at least while I was awake, I could sort of, you know, I could try and employ different techniques to try and calm myself down whenever this stuff would happen. But when I'm asleep, I'm completely at the disposal of my self-conscious, so yeah. my subconscious. Um, so it was, that was really difficult for me. Um, but what I did find when I was able to sort of start telling people about it and, and you know, reaching out to people and, um, talking about what had happened and, and whilst, you know, my family was incredible and all my, you know, pretty much all my close friends were incredible supports for me and really helped me through. Um, one thing that I did find is that some people's response and even people that I'm really close with and good friends of mine, um, I think like particularly men, um, who possibly didn't know how to respond to it. A, a lot of them, their reaction would be something like, along the lines of, oh, well, I can't, you know, as if you didn't, you know, like hit him or something, as if you didn't sort of, you know, oh, or something like if, if I was in that situation, I would have like punched him or something like that. And it's a really, I think that's sort of bred from this kind of toxic masculinity idea that, um, you know, men shouldn't get sexually assaulted and we should be able to defend ourselves. And and it's, it's a difficult area to talk about because, Sexual assault is 100% an incredibly gendered crime and it mm. disproportionately impacts women and it's horrible yeah. and, and that's born out of, you know, the systems of patriarchy and toxic masculinity that we know exist and that is something that I'm very passionate about. We need to, you know, we need to work on and we need to combat. Um, but I think in this sort of adverse kind of way, um, those same elements of, you know, the patriarchy and toxic masculinity, masculinity exist when men get sexually assaulted because there's this, there's this sort of underlying um, expectation among men that, oh, well, men don't get sexually assaulted because, you know, that's not, that's not something that happens to men. That's not something, you know, if, if you're a man and you let yourself get sexually assaulted, you know, that you were weak, you weren't able to sort of like um, defend yourself. You know, that's something that, you know, only happens to women because they don't have the physical strength to defend themselves. And, it's it's obviously such a it's it's completely incorrect obviously um and i think what it means is that um what it leads to is this situation where men who have been sexually assaulted really find it almost impossible to actually speak up about it and and sort of be able to even just to themselves sort of say yes this is what happened i I was sexually assaulted and then moreover to be able to seek the help that they need to work through it um and Mm. speak to reach out to people because they've got this perception in their head that 
no, men don't get sexually assaulted. Like, this isn't a crime that happens to men. And, you know, I, I, I was, you know, if it did happen to me, then maybe I was weak because I let it happen to me. And that's obviously so far from the truth. And, you know, even close friends of mine would have, you know, responses that potentially sort of bordered on that. And, um, you know, as we see, I think what that leads to is men that, you know, have been sexually assaulted um, more often than not end up suffering in silence because there's this, um, you know, toxic masculinity element that sort of prevents us from being able to say, no, this is what happened to me. I was sexually assaulted. Um, it doesn't make me weak that I was sexually assaulted mm. and I'm going to, you know, speak about it. I'm going to seek the help that I need for it. Um, and I think that's evident even just in my case where after my story went public, there were over a hundred people that came forward who, who had been suffering in silence. And, yeah. you know, that's obviously got to do with, you know, varying level of support that, that people have. But I think a, a definite element there is this societal, um, sort of idea that yeah you know men don't get sexually assaulted um you know and and men should be able to defend themselves and and also you know it comes back to the idea that we talked about earlier that um you know men feel like oh we should be able to you know we should be able to work through these things ourselves and we don't need to you know seek support and all those kind of things and i think there really does need to be a shift in that space because we know like we the, the stats tell us that you know, depression um, and well, suicide rates in particular among men are disproportionately high, um, and that that is just purely, in 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 my opinion, um, a product of um, these you know sort of societal forces, this toxic masculinity, and this idea that um, you know we we need to suffer in silence and we can't seek help, and it's like these these things happen. You know, you're not weak yeah. just because you were sexually assaulted. You're not weak because that happened to you. Um, yeah. And it, it takes so much strength, in fact, to be able to talk about it and to seek the help that you need and to be able to, you know, live with that having happened because no matter what happens, I'm always going to be a sexual assault, you know, survivor slash, you know, victim survivor. Um, and that's always going to live with me. I'm always going to have, you know, that memory. That's not going to go away. And I've got to live through that. Um, and, and that's obviously difficult and it, it takes a lot of courage to be able to do that. But it, it's so much easier to do that when you seek the support that, that you need to be able to work through yeah. it because no one can go through something like this and mm. be unaffected by it. No one can have something like this happen and not having, you know, have adverse impacts from that. So, you know, we need to be, we need to be kind to ourselves. We need to be able to go, you know, no, I'm going to speak up about it. I'm going to seek the help that I need. Uh, we need to be able to have confidence that when we tell a friend that this is what happened to us, that they're going to be able to sit there and go, oh, my God, I'm so sorry, I can't believe, how can I help? Rather than, you know, this sort of false bravado of like, oh, as if you didn't, you know, just punch him or whatever. It's like, no, we need to be there for each other. So, yeah, I guess if there's any message that I can try and put out there, it's, you know, we need to really sort of push for this cultural shift and we need to grow more comfortable in talking about the hardships that we experience as men. Um, yeah. And we need to, um, yeah, really just break down these systems of, of patriarchy and toxic masculinity that, um, the funny thing about them is that, you know, when a lot of men, when they hear the term toxic masculinity, they think, oh, you know, it's just, they think in this really sexist way, they think, oh, you know, this is just women complaining about, you know, things that don't exist when obviously they do exist. And toxic masculinity is an awful thing that, that contributes to the patriarchy and, and inequality for women and everything. But yeah. the, the ridiculous thing about that opposition is that breaking down systems of patriarchy and toxic masculinity actually only helps men as well. It's, it's yeah. those systems are the things that they're the reasons that we have, you know, issues with mental health and, and so many other things, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I guess my message is really, um, a, you know, if, if you've been through something like this and if you've listened to this story and you think, Oh God, I think something like that's happened to me. Or if you know that you've been assaulted before and, and, and you've really struggled to speak out about it, um, you know, take it from me, me to you, I've been through the same thing and speaking about it and seeking help has helped me so much and has really, you know, gotten me to a point now where I'm, I'm living life pretty much fine. Like it's, it, it, it doesn't live with me anywhere near as heavily as it used to. Um, but also, um, you know, take the message that, yeah, we need to really um, think about these, you know, issues of, um, you know, how we, how we perceive men and how, what we perceive masculinity to be. And, um, you know, these toxic ideas of, oh, you know, men just soldier on through and we're fighters and we don't let things happen to us are just 
so far from the truth because it's not my fault that I got sexually assaulted. I didn't let that happen to me. It happened to me. Mm. And it's going to happen to so many other men. And that's not your fault if it happens. So, you know, yeah. need to help each other. Yeah. And, and just, just to add to that, I think like it all comes, like a lot of this comes back to the stigma that's embedded around around men and the values that we've kind of been exposed to growing up and a core part of it is mental health and that's like the focus of our podcast and the things we want to talk about but we can see how it flows through your whole life um, whether it be right at the start yeah. when you're talking about you know how do you share that you had this disorder when you weren't sure what it was right through to soul story and obviously mm. in the last couple of years with with this with this um event um it all comes down to i mean i mean it's all that links links up right um so yeah it's obviously a very yeah. a lot there and it's very yeah. intense and i mean if anyone's like listening to this um yeah it's super insightful and yeah i just want to say like thanks so much mm, for yeah. sharing that and having yeah, the courage thanks. to share that and just want to say that's super inspirational to see that you were able to go to the media and share it after what had happened in court and even that was in itself another challenge on top of what you had been through mm. in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. And, and I think as well, um, just a couple of things I'd like to say as well, I guess I've just sort of thought of is one that if, if you're listening to this and you've experienced something like it, um, well, first and foremost, that you know, just to give you resources that you can use if you're not sure where to go to. Um, I think CASA, C A S A, um, is an organisation um, specifically uh, built for sexual assault survivors. Um, so look up like the CASA website. Uh, I think if you're based in Australia, it might only be Victoria. I'm not certain. Um, I went to Southeast CASA because that's where I was living at the time, but. Um, CASA, um, C-A-S-A, uh, is, a, is a resource that, that I really encourage um, you use. I, I went to them for um, sort of psychology appointments to specifically focus on working through having been sexually assaulted, and they're amazing. Um, so there are resources out there for you, obviously, Beyond Blue, you know, these other yeah. ones, Lifeline, these ones that we know if you're really, really struggling, do reach out to them because they really, really can help, um, and they really did help me. Um, and, and beyond that, if, if, if you've experienced something different, I, th I think um, one of the ways that we do break down these sort of stigmas and, and we do break down these you know, toxic sort of um, societal elements that are at play are just through speaking honestly and openly about these things, um, you know, not sort of trying to kind of tiptoe around the issue, um, being able to um, have honest conversations and, and reach out to people and, and speak up about um, something that you might have gone through because, you know, I guess if I can, um, you know, not to pump myself up or anything, I don't really view, I don't view myself as um, special for, for having spoken up about it or anything. I sort of, you know, I feel like that's, kind of, I, I personally felt like that I almost had an obligation to do that because I had the support around me to make it, you know, easier than it would have been for a lot of people. But, um, you know, from, I guess from my experience, me speaking up about it, um, you know, was able to help other people real, either realise that this has happened to them or speak up about it for the first time and possibly seek the help that they um, they they needed. I remember I did an interview um, on radio the day after or the day that the story came out um, on, on ABC and mm -hmm. I listened to it later on and some, a listener had called in straight away sort of saying like, wanting to like thank me for saying, you know, you've really helped me. Like I've realized that this sort of happened to me as well. And, you know, now I'm going to seek the help that I need. So if, yeah. if you've, if you've got the strength and the support around you to sort of speak about and have these honest conversations, not, not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily even need to be, you know, in the media plastered across everywhere, but just having conversations with friends about, you know, these things and being open can help other people who, you know, might've experienced the same thing. We never know. Like you, you don't know what someone else is going through and you don't. Being able to speak candidly about these things, being honest, not tiptoeing around it can can actually help other people more than you would realise. So, um, yeah, first and foremost, if you've had something similar to happen to you, I, I really, you know, I feel for you. I'm here for you. Um, and, you know, feel free, like, reach out to my DMs if, if you know me um, or even if you don't. And, and I can, I'll try and help if I can. But, you know, seek the support that's there. Um, and, and then, you know, these conversations really can help people. So, so don't shy away from them. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tommy. No, that, that was incredible, mate. Um, I like, yeah, I don't think we can, we can really sort of thank you enough for 
you know, coming on and, and sharing the story. I think it was just, yeah, it was intense. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it was, it was, it was intense. But I think it's this conversation that we definitely need um, because I think, I think, like you said, Tom, like the more we have these conversations, the more it, everything normalizes um, and everything, you know. I'm um, not that what you experienced was normal, um, but um, you know, I think the, the the stigma behind it can sort of be breached in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for that final message. That was great, and yeah, again, really appreciate everything you've shared and it's been it's been really insightful for me because I've obviously only known you in the last few years to hear everything from the start and see how much you've grown and developed um, was yeah it was, it was amazing to hear and just and if your TikToks are anything to go by yeah. Tommy I think you're doing really well at the moment <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I promise the people listening that the TikTok content is a bit uh, a bit lighter than the stuff that we've discussed today if you if you want to laugh if you want to laugh, that's another thing. If you want to laugh and you want to help your mental health that way, at Tom Monagle on TikTok, I'll uh, sort you out. Sweet. <laughs> on that note, this is Ujwal signing off. Thanks, Tommy. This is Manx signing off. Cheers for having me, boys. Really appreciate it. Tom signing off. And there you have it. That was Tom Monagle. Hope you guys enjoyed that podcast. I know it was super intense, but I think Tom's reflections on what he's been through uh, so insightful and it's an important journey to share so yeah really enjoyed chatting with him and hope you guys did as well but next week we've got Jeffrey Ahern who's a mental health clinician and yeah signing to stand with him and they talk about some really important topics such as the relationship between your diet and mental health so yeah that's going to be a great episode next week so looking forward to that but until then stay safe stay healthy and yeah enjoy goodbye